Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. And I'm here in the tap room with our co-host Maria Cabre. Hey, Maria. Hi, John. Did you ever make a uh, fitness resolution uh, at the beginning of the year? I stopped doing those a while back. I feel yeah. like they're very restricting, and then you feel like shit about yourself if you don't do them. <laughs> don't you feel that way? Yeah, like you hang something over your head yeah, that you like, may never um, fulfill. So crappy. Like, I didn't go to the gym today, yeah. you know, but I, I definitely have you to thank for putting me in more of a fitness uh, mind frame, um, although I did watch my mom do a lot of step aerobics growing up. <laughs> Jazzercise, yes. yes. Yeah. Who's our first guest this week? Our first guest this week was our first guest last week. He is the head brewer, co-owner of Seria Brewing Company in Arvada, Colorado. Along with his wife, Jody and their daughter, Catherine, they have built a truly independent family-run brewery, which produces great-tasting, non-alcoholic beers. He previously spent nearly 32 years at Coors Brewing Company, receiving a doctorate in science in Brussels, and going on to create Blue Moon White in the bowels of a major league baseball park and Coors Banquet. Today, he's on the forefront of brewing with cannabis and has written a book on the topic. If you didn't catch part one of our interview with Keith, go back and listen. Let's switch gears, Keith. In 2018, and after nearly 32 years at what became Molson Coors, you retired. But you didn't stay retired long. A few weeks after leaving, you, your wife, Jody, and daughter Catherine started Saria Brewing Company in Arvada. What exactly are alcohol-free THC-infused beers, and what inspired you to start brewing them? Well, the inspiration really was, uh, in the beer world, I had done almost everything I wanted to do. There was really not a lot left that I hadn't done. And so I thought, you know what, I, the only other, I guess, uh, frontier is cannabis. And so my wife and I thought, let's get into cannabis and try to create products and, and the, the main thing we thought was right then when, when we were starting, uh, smokables were the big thing. And we thought, you know what? Smoking is becoming less and less socially acceptable. Let's see if we can put cannabis into a beverage uh, like beer because be- beer is very social. Everybody, you know, walks around and uh, has a beer. Uh, you know, you go to a, a friend's wedding and you know you toast the couple with a beer, not a not a gummy or not a right. a brownie, right? And uh, but you do you, you do it with a beverage, and so we thought, okay, let's let's make cannabis infused beers uh, so that it could be socially acceptable. And so we did our homework and found out right away that you cannot combine alcohol with cannabis uh, and and have it for sale. That's illegal. Uh, it's got to be non-alcoholic. And then we looked further into that, and it's like. Well, the U.S. government, the, the Alcohol Tax and Trade Bureau, who actually oversees anything with alcohol in it, they actually have two rules in regards to low alcohol beers. So they have non-alcoholic, and then they have alcohol-free. And a lot of people don't know the difference, but non-alcoholic is what virtually all the beers are in the market. Uh, they have less than 0.5% ABV. And it says that, on the, you look at the, the label. It'll tell you. Non-alcoholic, less than 0.5% ABV. But the other category that a lot of people don't realize exists is called alcohol-free, AF. That label has to say alcohol-free, but then 0.0. And there are very few products. Uh, as, as far as we know right now, uh, Seria is the only craft alcohol-free beer out there that's 0.00. So, uh, and we have that on our uh, label that says alcohol-free, 0.00. And, um, and and we did that on purpose because we wanted to make sure that when we infused it with uh, cannabis, THC, that there were no legal issues from the, the TTB's perspective. And so I worked hard to get these recipes down where they're consistently 0.00 alcohol and have body and flavor. And so, uh, uh, 
we did that and then uh, figured out how to uh, get THC and CBD into a water-soluble format and then put it in the beer. And um, then we had to figure out you know, the right uh, uh, pasteurization schedule, uh, packaging, you know, all that. And it took some, some time and some work, but we got everything uh, together and then ended up getting into the Colorado cannabis market at the end of 2018 with a Belgian white that had five milligrams of THC. Wow. So for like, I guess a typical person, you imagine like, oh, we just throw some weed in a, you know, brownie batter and that, you know, but you don't know how high you're going to get by, you know, just one piece. This is a lot of science that went into that to break down, you know, I, I was reading um, the article about um, the beers that you're making and correct me if I'm wrong, but you made it so that you would get the same buzz from having like a 5% beer. Is that correct? Or, or something to that effect? More or less. Yeah. 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 So, so it turns out that about five milligrams of THC will give you the same uh, reaction as about a 5% ABV beer. So, uh, so 5%, uh, let's take a Coors Banquet. If you drank it one 12 ounce can of Coors Banquet, you know, you, You'll feel good. You'll feel relaxed, but you're not going to be fall on the floor drunk right. <laughs> from that. But and at the same time, a lot of people don't even feel buzzed after that. They'll say, "Oh, you know, I, I feel relaxed, I feel better." And and with five milligrams, it's it's almost the same feeling where you you a lot of people aren't buzzed. They're they're more relaxed with five milligrams. Some some are buzzed, just like with alcohol, five percent alcohol. Some people will get buzzed, but for the, for the most part. A 5% ABV beer, uh, people drink it and it's like, you know, I feel okay, I feel relaxed, I, I feel good. And same with that 5 milligrams. And so so that's why we chose 5 milligrams there. And then for our IPA, we thought, you know, you want to get a buzz because if, if you have an IPA, most IPAs are going to be about 7, maybe 8% ABV. Right. And and people drink them for the flavor, but also for that, that extra kick they have because, uh, you know, it's more alcohol. And so we thought, okay how much will it take to do that? And we, we looked and experimented and it's like, well, about 10 milligrams of THC uh, really gives a buzz for most people. And so, so we centered on 10 milligrams. And then with THC, when you start getting elevated levels of THC, sometimes people will take that and then they start feeling a little bit shaky and anxious. Right. And, and it's like, okay, to kind of get around that, we're going to throw in an equal amount of CBD. So our IPA, um, it, it had 10 milligrams of THC plus 10 of CBD to mellow out that buzz. Oh, and, wow. it, and it worked nicely. Keith, can I ask you for a lay person, what is the difference between THC and CBD? It all confuses me when I see it in marketing. I don't know what the heck either one is. I just think it's all cannabis. But what is the difference between the two? Uh, substances, if that's what they're called, mm-hmm. that you just described. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It, I'm well, not a brewer, you know, man. Uh, <laughs> or a smoker, clearly. Or a smoker, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah. It turns out that cannabis, uh, whether you're talking marijuana or hemp, uh, the plant has uh, over a hundred of these things called cannabinoids. Cannabinoids are, are the things that have a physiological reaction on your body. The two most famous ones are THC and CBD. So THC is the one that makes you high or, or you know, makes you dizzy or mm. whatever. But anyway, THC is the stuff that makes you high. Mm. CBD, cannabidiol, is the compound that uh, a lot of people believe makes them tired and sleepy and relaxed. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and there's research out there that, that shows that in certain cases, it really does do that. It, it's a CBD helps you to relax and uh, sleep at the right dosage levels. And THC definitely uh, is an inebriant or intoxicant. It makes you buzzed or high. So, so, so did uh, only did only the IPA have the CDB in it, and the and the the other beers just had THC, right? The other beer, correct, right? Yeah, okay. the the Belgian white yeah. had five milligrams of THC, right, and no CBD because at that low level, uh, THC. Uh, can act as, to me, as a uh, 
uh, a nice relaxing compound versus mm -hmm. something that's going to really get you stoned. Mm -hmm. And at 10 milligrams, it, it will give a buzz to most people. Right. And so that's why you have to throw in some CBD to kind of mellow out that buzz so you don't start getting anxious and wow. uh, shaky and yeah. nervous. Yeah. Uh, and, and it helps a bunch. So, awesome. so you can get a good mellow buzz off it. Thanks for the so, explanation. But to go and delve in a little bit further, within the THC, there's the sativa and the indica. Are you mm -hmm. using a hybrid for these beers? Well, when you talk about uh, sativa, indica, hybrids, you're talking about the the plants the and the flower yeah. or the complete extract from those. Uh, but when I'm talking of THC and CBD, you can pull that from virtually any variety because THC is THC, right. whether it comes from a sativa or an indica. Um, and I'm not pulling the, uh, the terpenes, the smells, because those are unique to the varieties too. When you pull out just the uh, THC and the CBD, there's really no smell. There is a bitter taste, kind of like hops, because cannabis and hops really are, I would say, cousins on the, the big family tree of life. Yep. Uh, they both are called cannabaceae. So uh, it's just that uh, they, they look a little different and they have similar terpenes, but cannabis happens to have THC. Hops has... Uh, the, the alpha acids that actually turn bitter. And right. so, so it's really interesting because they, uh, they have so many similarities. You, you use the female plants only in, in hops and in cannabis. You don't use the males. Oh, I didn't know uh, that about hops. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of different thing, or things that are uh, unique to plant, to the cannabis world and the uh, hops world that, that they have in common. So it, it's really it's fascinating to, to read and look and study. So it turns out the market wasn't quite ready for THC-infused beers. What were some of the challenges that you faced? Well, number one was the, the fact that it's federally illegal. and so <laughs> That's so a big when, one. <laughs> yes. So when it's federally illegal, even though it's legal in your state, uh, the issue then is that banks, a lot of banks won't do business with you. Um, uh, what else? You fall under 280E, which is the IRS rule that says you cannot write off anything except for cost of goods sold. So if you if you had a brand new, you know, uh, $100,000 piece of machinery, you can't write that off. You have to eat all those costs. Wow. And so your effective tax rate under 280E can be as high as about 75%. Uh, so you're paying just paying through the nose uh, on taxes. So it's really, really hard to get a good margin. And that's why you have to price your products high in a uh, dispensary because you've got to recoup that money to make a profit. Um, and then the other big issue with beverages is that most people that go into a dispensary, and again, not everybody goes to a dispensary, only only the, uh, the brave and the young. Uh, the market changes eventually, but a lot of people don't just go to a dispensary unless they're going to get flour, smokables, or edibles, like usually gummies. Uh, and very few people go into a dispensary to buy liquids. And so uh, so with that mindset, liquid sales are still a very small fraction of cannabis sales. Uh, out, you, could, you could see that even edibles are a small fraction of sales, but drinkables are a smaller fraction. Uh, people go to a liquor store or to a grocery store for drinkables, uh, that is soft drinks or right. beer. Right. They, they don't go to dispensary. So until we see federal legalization, it's going to be hard to do beverages. Uh, and you do have these states where, where they've got uh, hemp-based products, but yeah. even that is that's federally illegal. The DEA has said, you know, if you if you supplier take CBD from hemp and acidify it and turn it into delta eight, delta nine, or delta ten. That's federally illegal to put that in a beverage and sell it. Uh, huh. It's still a narcotic, a, a Schedule One narcotic. Right. And so, so, uh, but there's some states that say, well, we we made a mistake, like Michigan or uh, Minnesota. They, they say, well, we accidentally legalized it, and now it can be sold in stores. And it's like potentially, but, but no, it's still still breaking federal law. And the Fed, you know, the Feds are looking at you, and uh, so that that's why. 
uh, it's really tough right now. Uh, in fact, there's there's a lot of uh, beer distributors that won't touch CBD or THC um, because they potentially could lose their federally issued uh, distribution license wow. or some brewers could f- lose their federally issued brewers permit. And that's your, that's your livelihood. And you don't right. want to risk right. losing that. So do you feel like you're yet again, having a flashback to pushing up a boulder with this <laughs> and, and well, in a different way, obviously. Yes. But we went as far as we could and we said, okay, you know what? We're just going to sit on the sidelines for now and wait for federal legalization. Cause it's, it's coming. I mean, um, everybody thought it would come under Biden, uh, and, and it didn't. And so a lot of people were upset until last year, almost a year ago, Biden said, you know what, uh, health and human services, you guys study this to death and then make a recommendation. So they did. Their recommendation is let's move it from schedule one to schedule three, because Ooh. it does have medical value. And yeah. there's some, some right. good in there. Absolutely. So, so they did that. And now they gave that recommendation to the DEA. Uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency is the sole overseer of uh, the scheduled drugs. So uh, uh, schedule one, two, three, four, and five, those drugs. Schedule one is the most dangerous, and uh, if it's there, it has no medical value, highly addictive, and that's where cannabis is currently. But they now have the recommendation to move it to schedule three. So it's in their hands, and they've been studying it, and it's up to them now. But they can leave it as a Schedule One if if they want. And there are some Republican lawmakers that are calling those people, saying, "Leave it as a Schedule One." Interesting. There are some there are some Democratic lawmakers calling the DEA, writing letters saying, "You know what? Just completely take it off the scheduling, uh, make it legal." Right. And there's some that that are saying. Do what the uh, HHS has recommended. Move it right. from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3. Right. So the DEA, everybody's waiting right now to see what the DEA will do. And the rumor is that they will get it done anytime between right now and Election Day because it's either going to hurt or help whichever party you're looking at. Right. If it's Biden, it will help him tremendously if it becomes legal. Right. But, uh, uh, so, yeah, so people are, are looking. And like I said... You go, go to the other side of it, the supplier side, and if it becomes federally legal, uh, IRS 280E rule goes away. It's like, oh, this is no longer a Schedule One, and therefore it, you can use banks. You can uh, ship it across yes. state yes. lines. Yes. You can do. You, know, you can write you stuff are, off. Yes. So so uh, it just becomes so much uh, easier when it's federally legal, and you can sell it potentially. Uh, I. I once it's regulated like alcohol, then you can sell it in, in liquor stores and convenience stores, grocery stores. And then you won't have that um, stigma of people trying to go to a dispensary because there's so many people that don't want to go to a dispensary. Right. Um, yeah. and, and yes, when it's when it's available in a, in a liquor store or a convenience store, that's when you're going to see sales for cannabis beverages. Just shoot sky change high. The game. Yeah, it'll change the game completely. So obviously you've moved towards this obviously and, and with the original mission being the non-alcoholic with the THC infusion in it. And obviously you've had to pivot till that opens up. Now you're doing NA beers to help kind of bide that time and kind of speaking upon NA beers, obviously uh, it's become a very prevalent thing as we've gone on and it's growing and growing and, and becoming part of the market share of craft beer. I think more and more people are diving into it, but this is not something that is always readily available to brewers because I, I know there's different ways because I've done my own reading and my own research, and there are methods of achieving this. And like typically, uh, uh, the, the larger brewers are either dealkalizing, reverse osmosis. Um, but as I'm reading now, I think yeast manufacturing companies are trying to create yeast strains that would help you create an NA beer without having to buy a $300,000 dealkalizer or spending half a million dollars in technology to help you get there. My concerns with that is what, how, how easy is it without a dealkalizer or reverse osmosis to pull off a beer that doesn't just taste like a malt mom. sugar wart? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's really tough. You can uh, 
it's tough to do that. And um, it, it requires either a lot of technology or or you have to rent the technology from somebody and, and bring it into your brewery. So it's, uh, it's very, very difficult to do that. Um, we've actually figured out how to do that. Um, we actually behind me, if you can see right above my shoulder right there, that's our patent for making alcohol free and NA beer. So that, wow. that allows us, we use our patent to make it. Um, and it allows us to, to get down to 0. 0.00 consistently. Wow. And I think we're the only ones that can do it because of that patent. The uh, only other way to do it is to use vacuum distillation. Right. But vacuum, right. vacuum distillation is not always uh, consistent. Sometimes you'll see product as high as 0. 0.06, 0. 0.05, which is small, but still breaks the rule of, of the law that says an alcohol-free beer has to be 0. 0.00. Right. And, uh, and, when, and when you're talking about vacuum distillation, just for clarification, you're basically taking a finished alcohol containing beer mm-hmm. and at that point distilling it to extract all the alcohol that's within the body of that beer and just leaving the remnants or whatever's left over of that product. But I've read that during that process, though, that it, it can also change the flavor profile of the beer during that distillation process process absolutely because what you're doing is you're putting the beer it goes through the system it decarbonates it right and then it puts it under a vacuum and then it heats it up but normally alcohol will distill off at about 100 and 170 degrees or so correct and uh, uh but if you put it under a vacuum the alcohol starts bubbling off at about 70 degrees fahrenheit correct and so so you're not cooking the beer and and it works but uh it also pulls off flavor compounds too and so what typically you do is at the end of it you grab some of the flavor that's been pulled off and you inject it back in and you're no longer 0.00 you end up being less than 0.5 percent abv nice so it's 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 really hard to get a zero 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 beer consistently through that system that tastes good um and like i said we our patent is the only technology that allows a brewer to make a zero zero beer consistently, and you can dial the the sweetness up or down, and you can bo- dial the body up or down. Wow. So you can wow. uh, put your make your beer the, any way you want, and uh, in, it's you could also use regular brewer's yeast because uh, when you use some of those new specialty yeasts, um, what you find is a lot of those yeasts that don't ferment maltose or maltotriose, which are the main sugars in wort, those yeasts have been isolated from uh, spoiling fruit, rotten vegetables, and and they they isolate them, and then they say, wow, this one does not ferment maltose or maltotriose, but it'll ferment glucose. So you you do your, uh, prepare your wort, use these yeasts, and they'll they'll definitely be less than 0.5. They'll never get down to zero, zero, zero. Right. But they typically will have a flavor profile just a little different than a brewer's yeast. Yes. So yeah. there's a lot of ch- lot of things you have to look out for. Well, it's it's what it said. Like, right. That's where you get that very warty taste to the left, like those NA beers. Like you're just mm-hmm. drinking wort at that point. That's what it. That's where that. Obviously, with what's left over, that's what's making it taste like that. Now, with this patent, you guys are obviously going to keep that for yourselves. Are you? Have you thought of monetizing that at all and selling that process? Yeah, we- We've actually had a lot of people contact us because they, they're interested in using that for alcohol-free, but also for alcohol-free as it pertains to cannabis when it Ooh. becomes federally legal. Hmm. So so we're thinking about doing that. And at the same time, we're, we're contacted by people from really around the world, especially the Middle East and right. China, Europe, where NA or alcohol-free beer uh, is, is required. Because in the Middle East, yep. some of the strict yes. Muslim yes. countries... Yep. Uh, and it, non-alcoholic beer is not sold because there's that little bit of alcohol. Right. Right. So they have to, they have to have alcohol-free beer over there. So we've been contacted by quite a few companies that want to use that technology because they don't want to spend, you know, three quarters of a million dollars or a million for a vacuum distillation unit, Correct. And, uh, and then have to have somebody with that expertise on how to run it consistently. So. Uh, that, yeah, might, so, that so, might be a conversation you and I have after the show. Yeah. 
<laughs> last question. Yes, Keith. absolutely. Last question. Go ahead. What is the future of cannabis-laced beer, and what would it take for you guys to start producing it again? Well, number one, when you say cannabis-laced, to me, that, that refers to negative. Right. No, no, infused. Cannabis-infused. And so, so the future to me is, is bright, and it's going to be huge, but... The caveat is that it's got to be federally legalized, and right. we think that's going to happen soon. Um, it, it, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it, it's the DEA uh, has that in their hands right now, and they have the power to reschedule or even deschedule cannabis. And so once they do that, that will start, the, whichever action it is, will start the process of making uh, cannabis federally legal in the same way that alcohol is legal and regulated. Right. And, uh, and then once, uh, once that happens, it's going to be a huge market because already uh, I'm not sure if either of you participated in dry January last month, but no. every year a record number of people starts doing dry January. Right. And you can look and see how beer sales go down and uh, cannabis sales go up. And so I, I should say alcohol sales kind of right. go down and stay flat Cannabis goes up yeah. uh, because pe people want to relax. They want something. Yes. Uh, and if they give up alcohol for a month, they'll use cannabis or or something else. Maybe it's an herbal tea right. or something, uh, but they'll do something. And that's why, in my opinion, once you see federal legalization, you're going to see um, cannabis beverage sales go up. But the real thing that will trigger it is when people can go into their store and see side by side Cannabis beverage, alcohol beverage, they that's when you're going to see sales really take off. And then if you have the technology to clean it up so that people say, oh, that's that one that has all the all these cannabinoids that can help me uh, be functional and better and healthier. And it doesn't have that dankness to it. I want that one. Yes. And so you'll you'll just see sales uh, really skyrocket. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this has been very informative, Keith. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on, and I mean, it's just the future's bright. Bo boatloads of information to unload off of this, and it's uh, it's just thank you very much, and thank you for the book. And for yes. anyone that's interested yeah. on some uh, lots of information, uh, brewing with cannabis by Dr. Keith Via, PhD. Thank you yes. so much. Thank you, Keith. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest is a certified fitness instructor, personal trainer, sports nutritionist, former competitive bodybuilder, motivational speaker, and podcaster. She is also the coach and proprietor of Miami Beach Fit Camp, a popular daily fitness class which meets on 64th Street Beach in Miami Beach. She's here to share her own remarkable fitness journey and maybe inspire us just as our bold New Year's resolutions have fizzled. Oh, and by the way, she used to weigh over 400 pounds. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Kristen Smith. Thank you very much for joining us today here physically in the tap room. It's uh, good Yay. to have somebody in-house to, uh, to interview again. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a very um, eclectic, fun, entertaining room. So <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, to say the least. It's... Uh, compilation of a lot of things of, <laughs> of nerdy are, things of who we are absolutely I didn't want to say nerdy it's okay no, it's fine it's fine <laughs> he's a that's who i am nerdy jock it's very oh, weird gosh. it's a good combo yeah <laughs> so let's let's dive in here let's start at the beginning where did you grow up and what did your folks do for a living um, I grew up in Minneapolis, and my parents were my mom was a homemaker for the most part, and my dad was a janitor slash carpet cleaner. So, nice. you know, blue collar, like the, is there's a color lower than blue collar. We were like pur purple collar. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, the story goes that like when you were 27 years old, you actually had a shocking moment weighing a truck full of corn at your uncle's farm in Iowa. What happens in this process? It leading up to the truck corn? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I was raised in this, uh, you know, really locked down environment, and there was no pleasure. There was no fun. Everything was a sin. We didn't go to movies. We had no TV. We had nothing. We were homeschooled. So you're like, talking extremists. We're talking extremists. Okay. And so, and I'm the youngest, so I'm bored, and I discovered at a young age that food was really fun, 
And so I just developed a very unhealthy relationship with food, which not uncommon to kids. Um, but, you know, always a little chubby. My whole family was overweight. That was me. I was yeah. chubby and overweight. And I was the youngest, and my sister was thin. And so, you know, it just started the cycle of kids comparing. And then, you know, my parents were just like, oh, she's got our hips, and she's strong. And um, I was like, all right, I'll be, I'll be smart and strong, and I'll eat what I want. And, and so, you know, and then I get older. I got married really young to get out of the cult. I got pregnant, got heavier, was really depressed, got heavier. And I knew I was really heavy. I was miserable. But I didn't weigh myself very often because it was just kind of... You, know, you don't want to see that th- side yeah. of things. You get to right? a point where you're just embarrassed. And right. So, yeah, my, I went down to Iowa. My uncle's a farmer, and I rode along with him to the elevator to drum, you know, drop, uh, drop a semi of corn. And I didn't think anything of it, but he, I was holding the receipts afterwards, and I'm an accountant, right? So I'm looking at all, like, what's this data? And then I see you know, the weight coming in and the weight going out so they know how much corn they sold. And then I flip back and I see, you know, I do the math for what it weighed yesterday when I wasn't in the truck. And I was like, holy buckets. And I was just so embarrassed because I just thought, I bet Uncle David looked at that. And I bet he knows how much I weigh. You know, it was just a moment of pure, like, this has gotten out of control. And then, I mean, it was, I didn't do anything at that point. It was just, it was a big, it was a big eye-opening shame moment for me. So at that point, how much were you weighing at that point? So, 405. 405. I knew I was in the threes, you know. I'm like, okay, right. I'm, I'm around 300 pounds, but well, I've four the, was shocking. I've been in the threes when I played college football. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of weight. You're also 6'5", John. <laughs> she's not short. She's okay, not short. but she's not 6'5". It doesn't matter. I, I know, but He's listen, like, oh, I, I weighed 300 pounds when I, I was, a, you know, playing O-line. Right. You it's had still, to weigh that, dude. And you had a job to do, you know. Right, I had a job, but it's still unhealthy. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's still unhealthy yeah, for a long-term for result. Yes. It still impacts you, your joints, everything. everything. It impacts Absolute. everything. Yeah. And, and the emotional side, like, oh God, yeah. how, how, what oh, was the turmoil like I mean, in, internally, you know? Because, I mean, it's, it's miserable. There's a thing about it. Like, you walk in the room, you're always going to be the biggest person in the room. There's no doubt about it. And so everybody looks, but people are nice. They don't want to stare. So people look at you and then they quickly look away. And so you get used to that. And so my, my role was to try to, never get them to look. I didn't want to be looked at at all. And, um, I just, and I just kind of, I hunched more. I had brown hair that I just kind of started to let hang in my face. I mean, it made everything just kind of cave in. I was just hiding in plain sight and just, um, I just felt like, I felt like crap. I felt like, a, like worthless. It was a hor- It's a horrible way to live. And it affected your personal relationships as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I was in this, you know, oppressive growing up and then I, I'm like, I'm going to get out of this. So I marry the first person who paid attention to me he was uh worse than my parents um you know this he'd get into the psychology of like a system of control into another system of control um so then i was i was stuck i had a kid i couldn't leave wow food was reliable uh delicious that was so food was your crutch oh yeah Yeah. i mean food is fun like the salty donuts right around the corner. Did you see where I got my coffee? Right. I went in there and I just took a look, you know? Right. It's still, it's still emotional. And, right. And unfortunately, I made a big connection with that from go. Right. And so. And in know. being that, that weight and that size, you have to consume a lot of food. Because I know what it <laughs> took for me to maintain my weight and eat there. I mean, yes. it, it, it requires a lot of calories. And it's not just good food. You're just eating things that bring you more pleasure, that satisfy you. Mostly that's like junk food. Oh, yeah, the yeah. junk food. Yeah. A day in the life of eating for me, it's like one of my most popular topics because it's, I mean, it's, in hindsight, it's kind of funny. Um, I spent so much time eating and it was the moment I woke up. Um, when my son was little, when I was in college, I went to college later on. I drop him at school and then I go to school. And so it was a drive through taking him to school and then a drive through between his school and my school and then study break at a buffet and then a drive through on the way home. And then, like, my husband would say, let's order pizza. I'd be like, I'll pick it up. And I would stop at McDonald's and eat, then go get the pizza, and then bring the pizza home and eat the pizza. I mean, it's just, like, wow. all day. I mean. It's crazy. So how long after this corn weighing incident did you start your weight loss journey? Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't that long. I don't know exactly how long. Because what really snapped me out of it was just a moment that 
you know, I, I didn't plan on. I knew I needed to lose weight. I couldn't stick to a diet for one day. It would just, I couldn't do it. Um, but what changed everything for me was I was in college um, and I walked into one of my college classes and I tell this story often. This is the story of what changed everything. I, I had a classmate. She was a nice girl. She's always nice to everybody. But she looked up when I walked in and she said, oh, hi, Kristen, you look nice today. And it just changed something in me to where like maybe a little effort. So then I thought, well, maybe I could try makeup. I didn't wear makeup growing up the way I did. So I didn't know how to do makeup. So I started to just do these little things and I started to feel just better about like walking around. I didn't lose a pound. I didn't do anything. But then like maybe a week later, my sister asked me to be in her wedding and I was like, oh, crap, I got to get a dress. And, and I went to the store. They didn't make dresses in my size. And it was humiliating. But the salesperson said, you know, maybe we could order the largest size. And then maybe we could sew some material in the sides. Yeah. And there was something in me that clicked. It was like, maybe I could fit into it when it gets in. So I started. And I, you know, it was kind of this idea, well, maybe I can. And I did. Started to just slowly lose some weight. And once that momentum got started... Um, I realized, oh, maybe this idea of maybe I could became, oh, I did that. Now what can I do? And that cycle changed everything. So you actually lost about a hundred pounds in two years. I mean, which is an amazing feat. How did you lose that weight? So for the first hundred pounds, it was about making swaps because I didn't know how to not eat my feelings. So none of my behaviors changed, right, right. but I started to get smart about what I was doing. So my first program I ever did was Weight Watchers, which I believe is a phenomenal program. Yep. All of a sudden I've got values to my food and I go, I can have two pizzas. If I have thin crust pizzas with ham on them instead of stuffed crust pizzas, so I can still have my two pizzas, but they're different and I can eat. So I didn't have to change the volume of what I was eating. So you started these, obviously, these swap outs, which started the the chain of effect to start losing the weight. But then you also had gastric sleeve surgery in 2011 and quickly lost another 80 pounds. Yes. Even with all of your previous efforts, like it doesn't sound like you could have gotten to where you are today without the surgery. I mean, is that is that true or do you think you could have gotten here without it? You know, it's, it's hard to say. I know at that point, you know, I'd lost about 100 pounds and I felt good. You know, when you're 300 pounds and you used to be 400 pounds, you feel thin yeah. and you can start shopping in regular plus size stores. And so I felt good and um, I got divorced. I got my life back. I was feeling good. And then I realized I wanted to do more active things and it was hard to move 300 pounds around. And, it, you know, it kind of hit a plateau and, you know, my behaviors hadn't changed my, I was eating less calories, but I was still eating too much. I was still having binge eating and I I couldn't get those behaviors to kind of come under control. I was still seeing a fast food restaurant, going to the fast food restaurant. So the behaviors, I had never really gotten my arms around. And um, I decided, you know what? My life is free. I'm free of this terrible relationship. I've got a great job. I want to do more. I'm going to do something that's going to get, get me there. It's going to help me. And so, yeah, the gastric sleeve was really powerful tool. It's a tool. It works for a while. That's the thing. It doesn't work forever. Um, But it gave me a little window of time where I saw the fast food sign. I realized I could not stop there. And I had to sit with how I was feeling without food. It's been noted that you started running. You joined a CrossFit gym at this point. You began to study nutrition. How did those actions empower you and plant seeds towards becoming a competitive bodybuilder, sports nutritionist, and trainer? When you say it that way, geez, um, it's quite, that's quite amazing. Good job, Rocco. I didn't mean to do any of this. That's why it's like so fun. Um, It's just a, it's like everything that I've said so far, it was one step after the next. You know, I started to see my weight creep up. Um, running was the first thing I did after I lost all that weight. Cause it was so fun that I could run a 5k and then I could run a half marathon and then I could run a whole marathon. How much were you weighing at that point when you started running? Uh, about 200 pounds. So I got down to about 200 pounds. Um, and I was like maybe 190 ish. And you know, the thing about the magic 100s is there's this part of my brain that was like, I've arrived, I'm under 200 pounds. And even though I wasn't really a healthy weight yet, I mean, no one's going to fault me for staying at this weight forever. I look way better, but I was, you know, I was soft. I had no muscles. I wasn't really healthy yet. And running was easy because, right. you know, 
if like you know strength training is harder than just putting a few hours onto a treadmill in some ways so i mean so how did you get into bodybuilding and where Uh, did you compete well so my best friend and i we we worked out together we met at our um we went at a f45 gym doing you know hit training and we're every single day and um, we'd always been told, she'd always been told she should do a competition. She's very muscular. And she'd lost 100 pounds as well. And um, we both had had skin removal surgery because we'd been obese. We had all this skin. So we just knew that this thing, this is a thing. It would be a hard thing. And we'd been doing all these hard things. Uh, we ran a marathon together. So we went and watched the the NPC show in, our, in Minneapolis um, in October of 2020, I think it was. And uh, we just sat up there and we looked at these like women in these sparkly bikinis sticking their butts out to be judged. And we looked at each other like, can we do this? It scared us. And we're like, we're going to have to do it. And our goal was we wanted to get up on stage and look like we belonged and that no one would say, wow, she's brave. Look at that mom who just like kind of did some stuff and got up there. We wanted to look like right. we belonged. Right. So she and I, we just decided, all right, let's do this. And it was just kind of the final nail in the coffin to defy everything that that I used to be I'm like if I can go from 405 to standing on that stage in that you've you've hit the mountaintop pretty yeah much. that's awesome. so so that's so our first show was in uh St. Louis in 2021 and yeah I got down to 139 pounds and that was too thin um but it was very redemptive I'm like I have burned off every potato chip you've every ever piece eaten. of pizza yeah eaten. we're at yes. a blank slate Right. Fresh start. And that was very, uh, very, it was just fun. It was really fun. So actually at some point you did the rational thing and you quit your job as an accountant, (laughs) moved to Miami beach and opened Miami beach fit club in November, 2020. What inspired you to make the career change? Oh yeah. And you see, again, you keep saying things in such a way that I'm like, what did I do? Um, Minnesota, Minnesota, um, during the lockdown was very, very locked down. Yes. And my yes. son had moved, my son grew up and moved away and I was just living there, uh, had a great job, was a controller at a law firm um, and working from home. And, you know, Minnesota winter sucks. And I had come down here on vacation. I'd come down here on a couple of key moments in my life where I had really phenomenal emotional experiences here. I ran the half marathon here in 2020, right before lockdown, just because I wanted to run in a warm place. And I thought, you know, I wonder if the, the partners would let me just like leave for six months since we're not going in the office and I could just find a place, a cheap place, whatever. So they green lighted it. So I found a place down here and I was just excited. I got I had a two seater, a little convertible, drove down here. Um, it's a 27 hour drive. And I was thinking Jeez. the whole way, how do I avoid ever driving this car back? Because that was miserable. And it was about two weeks in that I went, I am never going back. This is amazing. This is the greatest. Right. I have never been happier. I have never felt so good. Just like walking the out the door. The, the weather. weather. You, yes. guys you don't have sads oh anymore. God. No. And you can just walk out the door. You don't have to put on coats. You don't have to put on boots. You just go. It was so cool. And um, Miami's the best place. Oh, that's why I wonder why Taylor moved back. Well, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know why he else. Yeah. It was phenomenal. And I live right on the beach. So, of course, you know, like it's, 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 it's epic. So, um, I, and I was working from home and it was great. And then I, you know, I'd been doing these workouts at home in Minnesota during lockdown. I'd, and I was sick of all the gyms closed. I'm a group fitness junkie. I was certified to be a trainer, but. You went I, to the beach. So, yeah. Well, I was first, I was doing these in a parking lot in the town I was living in all right, summer. Right. So it was great. And then it got cold and I'm like, see ya. So I came down here and I thought, I wonder if anybody here wants to work out outside. And so I just posted in a Facebook group and said, hey, here I am. This is what I do. I've been doing this donation based. Come work out with me. And. One person came the first day and he happened to be someone who was very, you know, connected in his community and loved fitness. And he started telling people and he started to suggest, hey, you should maybe do a meetup group. Hey, you should make a WhatsApp group. Hey, if you put this on the sand, hey, you should get it. And I didn't know. I I was doing this before I logged in for work each day and I wanted to work out. But once we were on the sand and, you know, all these thousands of people who live right there could see us. Right. We started growing. And then I'm like, oh, I think I have a thing here. It was all accidental. And people love Nothing it. Nothing is nice. ever accidental. Yes, so yes. it's very true. I had no idea. Like in Minnesota, I was cutting my teeth for something that would become something that is so phenomenally powerful in my life. You just don't know. It's so crazy. Yeah. So tell us now about Miami Beach Fit Club. Like what is the mission and who are your clients and what makes it? 
Well, it's unique in that, you know, it's on the beach. What I love about it, it's on the beach. We do it at sunrise, which gets a lot of pushback from some people because they say, why so early? And I say, have you been on the beach at sunrise moving your body? Right. Because when you have that experience, you it's it's a it's spiritual experience. Yeah. There is nothing between you and just feeling who you are and starting your day that way. So we have the sunrise. There's no mirrors. So we have people that haven't worked out in forever. Common theme is I lost my fitness during COVID. And right. I say, well, it's right here. Come here. You don't have the lunk in the corner making you feel bad. You don't have all those muscles. You don't have the grunting. You don't have like all these machines you don't know what to do with. You have yourself. You have people just like you. You have me. I'm a cheesy um, energizer bunny at sunrise. <laughs> um, fun music. And you get an experience and you and you go start your day. So that's what makes it unique. And the people who found us are people like me who've moved here. They don't have community. They don't have any friends. and um, Or they're just sitting in their houses. There's no gyms right there on Miami Beach. And it's a way to get up in the morning, have people that are waiting to meet you, waiting to see you. You get an exercise session in. And it's and it's workout moves everyone can do. I make sure that you can you can do a hundred burpees in forty five seconds, or you can do four, or you can touch your toes and raise your hands to the air. Our oldest member is sixty nine and she's there every day. And then we've got sixteen year olds who, you know, fly across the sand and make us all go, Whoa, it's for everybody. So more body weight exercises. So body weight, but we also bring, we bring dumbbells out there. Oh, nice. So I have these two giant, I think together they're like about a thousand pounds now, wagons of weights and uh, grab a couple pairs, bring them to the sand and we do body weight. We do a lot of sprinting on the sand and then we do balance work on the sand, which is really, really great. Tell us about this podcast you have as well. Destination Begin. Like what type of contact content do you guys provide? So, uh, yeah, this is where I really started. And what I do is I, people would always say to me, your story is so interesting. You should tell people you should have a podcast. And clearly I can, you know, yammer on. So I just started kind of with the concept of like, I'm just going to tell my story of how I got unstuck, as I call it. Unstuck from the brainwashing of being raised, thinking that, you know, God hated me. And I was, you know, ruined my chances at eternity. I figured that out. And then I was in this really abusive marriage. And that really really hurt me. And I got unstuck from that. And then I'm 400 pounds. I got unstuck from that. And then the question being, what are you stuck in? Because if I can do that, what can you do? You know, that's my, my mission is to just say, I am an ordinary person who for some reason was able to pull myself out of these things. And I'm confident I'll pull myself out of everything that comes up. And so can you, so let's go. So speaking on that, what are your thoughts about the new uh, weight loss drugs? Wait, (laughs) So these quick fixes. Uh, here's the thing. Briefly. Yeah. When I was, you know, when I was 400 pounds, there's a lot of stress on my liver, on my heart, on my body, on my joints. So you say, what's more dangerous to persist at this or to take a, take a drug that, you know, may or may not be good for you long term. You know, you have to make that no decision, idea, right? right? Yeah. We don't know. I'm yeah. um, same with weight loss surgery. You know, there's people who die having right. weight loss surgery. Yeah. Um, so there's that. But I've seen the application of weight loss drugs more um, with people who need to lose like 10 to 15 right. pounds. Yep. Not, and not that scares me. Yeah. It scares me because, I mean, we don't know long term what that does to your, for ladies, hormonal health. Stomach paralysis is one of them. Yes. It's, it's, it scares me. And I, I know that it's tough to lose the last 10, 20 vanity pounds, but there's oh. just so many other things you to can try. Make smaller, first. smaller changes. Yes. No, I agree. And I they mean, all listen. add into like, it's one all, big thing, right? It, like the big chunk is always the not easy part, but that last yep. ten fifteen is the massive grind that you may not ever hit. Yes. Yeah. And so, I have and I, I and I understand, but I don't think I would ever result to or resort to using the drug because to me there's just too many unknowns. And we're using yes. stuff that used to be applicated somewhere else. And now they found that it does this, so we're going to use this, but we don't know the full study results of what's going to happen to you for using that. Right. We have no idea in 20 years what your bones are going to look like. Right. We, we just can't know. It's, so it's, it's scary. I understand why people do it. And I, when people are massively overweight, I have a little more compassion for it. But I, you know, the, the scary thing is it's, it's very easy to get. And you can go 10, 15 pounds overweight and start getting these shots. And then the number one thing, I've, I've trained a bunch of clients. I'm a personal trainer who say, I just lost a lot of weight on a drug. Now I have no muscle. Help me. And I'm like, all right, we have to start over. This is going to take time, and it's going to be harder than, than it would have been before. 
before I get to the last question, just something. I mean, obviously dealing with weight loss, right? I think people get confused by the fact that they want to put muscle on, but that is also going to put weight back on your body. Yes. Which the scale can be a lie at that point. I mean, how do you cross that bounds? Because muscle is healthier than fat. Yes. But the scale is going to lie to you and tell you you put weight back on even when you're putting muscle on, though. Yes. The scale is... Um, if I could take my, the scale away from all of my clients, I yep. would. Because yep. the, the, mark of, the mark of a successful light diet is consistency. Right. So, right. you know, I really work with my clients to say, if you want to weigh, fine, let's do it once a month. And then in between, I want to know how many days you check the boxes. That's success. That is going to, over time, that's going to get you everywhere you want to go. But you get up in the morning, you weigh yourself, you think it's going to be down. It's up. What do you do? Yeah. It's not working. I'm going to have a donut. Goes right. down. Oh, it's working. I can have a donut. Well, that's Either why way, it's hard for me donut. to, like, of all the gyms and places I've been, the ones that rely on putting you on a scale on a weekly basis to me is not, not the way to go about it. I mean, to me, more maybe doing, like, the body composition test. Absolutely. Would be the better way to handle it. Absolutely. If, you if I, you know, that I wish those were, there are some on the market, but I mean, that is the true test is your, your body, uh, body, body fat, fat percentage. percentage. Right. Yeah. To mus- muscle ratio, bone mass, all this, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Last question for you. What practical advice would you give our listeners who feel like they need to gain control of their health and fitness for the new year and going forward? Um, start now. Just start with something you're willing to do. The best question you can ask and answer your, every day is, am I willing? Right. And when you, I had it on my mirror and lipstick for a long time. Like you wake up, you look at that question and there's something in you that will, that will answer for you. Are you willing? It's like, no matter how tired you are, you see that question and think, yeah, fine. But one thing you're willing to change and do it now. Don't wait till Monday. There's nothing magical about January. It's nothing right. magical about Monday. You can start on Tuesday at Doesn't 2 o'clock. Doesn't matter when. Doesn't matter when, but you right. have to start. You know, step number 100 is impossible without step number one. Right. And the sooner you get step number one done, the better. Right. So don't wait and do something small that makes you feel better. That's what they always say. Start small and yeah. build off of that. Yeah. And if yeah. you can get people in your life to do it with you... Um, uh. It makes it easier. Makes Huge. it so much easier. That yeah. the community aspect, whether it's three people or one person or online, you know, people give people grief for showing off of their gym selfies. I'm all over that. Do it. Get some kind of a an accountability, even with its social media. You know, yeah, brag on yourself. You're in the small percentile if you work out every single day. You're, you're one tenth of one percent. Wait, exactly. <laughs> oh my God, he so. never stops giving you shit, Rocco. Dopamine. We need a dopamine response with, yes. with these things. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time. This has uh, been a great conversation. And, yes, thanks uh, for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Keith Villa and Kristen Smith, our co-host, Maria Cabre, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, Brian O'Connell. Thanks for starting your weekend with us. You can catch us each Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real.